for the uh, scripture reading. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. The Word of God. Last Sunday, we started a series that uh, continues today, looking at uh, some of the controversial and shocking things that Jesus said. And one of the interesting things is that they're still very shocking today. People still haven't quite grasped how to deal with the claims that he made. And uh, today we are in this passage here in Mark chapter 2, so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that uh, we can come into this place and seek your presence, knowing that you have been waiting for this all week. And sometimes uh, the events of the week have kind of uh, distanced us from you. And we've been feeling lonely and confused. But as we gather here, we, we know that we are in the context of the kind of praise and worship and fellowship that you are definitely part of. And uh, so we thank you for how we can reconnect with you in times like this and that we can take that reconnection into a new week and make sure that uh, that continues day by day. And especially, Lord, we thank you for the Lord's table that we can share today and what that means to us because the, everything depends on the truth that this table conveys. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus came to Middle Earth in the Middle East, the people there were amazed at the words he spoke. They were so refreshing and revolutionary. They listened with delight as he told them that the last shall be first, that the way up is down, and that only by losing your life will you find it. That's what we focused on last week. His words were so radical. No one ever spoke like this man. But while most of the common people loved his words, the powerful hated them. Jesus was not executed for what he did. They crucified him for what he said. 
He just went too far. Like that time in Capernaum, here recorded in Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Word spread quickly when Jesus came to town, and people dropped whatever they were doing. And everybody showed up. The place was packed. It was standing room only. All gathered to hear the words of life. Too bad for the outsiders, those who had arrived late. There was simply no more room. And they weren't live streaming it. It says in verse 3 that uh, some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Unfortunately, the weight of this stretcher had slowed them down. So when they saw the crowd, they realized that their efforts had been in vain. It was too late. They couldn't get in. So they turned around and went away disappointed. Well, not exactly. It says, uh, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. Now, some people simply won't take no for an answer. These men were absolutely determined, desperate to complete their mission. So they decided to do something outrageous, which means that there probably weren't any Baptists in this group. As a good Baptist, I would have objected because we've never done it that way before. Besides, what will people think? We can't go up there and start ripping the roof apart. That's vandalism. That's breaking and entering. Imagine the mess. All that thatch and mortar dust falling on the heads of those fine people wearing their Sunday best. After digging through it, they lowered the mat and the paralyzed man was lying on. In their desperation, these four men MacGyvered it and inadvertently invented the world's first elevator. Ground floor, kitchen items, bedroom furniture. And because of their efforts, the paralyzed man was now front row center, face to face with Jesus. But the members of the audience must have been enraged. Don't you hate it when you're in line and somebody from way in the back cuts in, muscles their way to the front, excuse me, pardon me, coming through, this is not acceptable civilized behavior. Where are your manners? But then again, when you get involved with Jesus, life can get somewhat messy at times. One lady complained to her pastor, you have ruined our church. You brought all this riffraff in here. And he answered, well, because of the love of Jesus, I really couldn't do any less. So the question is, what did Jesus think? Was he upset at this destructive act of trespassing? In verse 5 it says, When Jesus saw their faith. Now the front row audience saw this as an outrageous violation of common decency. But when Jesus looked up, he saw faith. And not just any kind of faith. This is not... Generic, mild-mannered faith. This is not wait-your-turn faith. This isn't standing-in-line faith. 
No, this was radical, coming through faith. Get out of my way, faith. Move over. I got to get to Jesus, faith. I don't know about you, but uh, my faith is easily discouraged. I rarely get past the first obstacle. Oh no, the door's locked. So much for that idea. Well, these men were remarkable. Their faith was like a battering ram, a demolition ball. Nothing was going to stop them from getting to Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if there were people like that in our culture? People who are hungering and thirsting for God. We don't see this very often anymore. Most Canadians are kind of inoculated against real faith. Probably because they got a mild dose when they were younger, developed some symptoms, and now they're immune. They've been spiritually vaccinated. And when you try to talk to them, it is, it's really frustrating I mean, come on, Jesus, eternal life, heaven. Come on, doesn't that mean anything to you? Oh, I don't know. I, I believe everyone should have their own religion. Well, I must be on my way. If what the Bible says is true, then the most important thing in life is having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. That's way more important, important than all the other things people get excited about. More important than climate change or pipelines or border walls or playoffs or the Avengers Endgame. People should be getting that excited about Jesus. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he said, if Christianity isn't true, then it's of no importance whatsoever. It doesn't matter. If it is true, then it is of ultimate importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. It is impossible to be half-hearted about Jesus. That is not an option. If what the Bible says is true, then everything depends on him because he is the only way to God. You cannot curb your enthusiasm. I can hardly wait for the Holy Spirit to really start convicting people about sin and righteousness and judgment. Because when that happens, some of the worst traffic jams in Calgary will be on Sunday morning when all those people who are usually sleeping in or walking their dogs or going for a jog, all of a sudden they're all in their cars desperately trying to get to church because they want to encounter Jesus. I hope I live to see that. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Say, what? What do you mean? Wait a minute. We went to all this trouble so you could heal him. 
This is a medical emergency. We have his health card right here. Our friend is paralyzed, and we know you have the power to restore his body. That's what this is about. What does forgiveness have to do with it? And come on, take it easy on him. Obviously, he's had a very tragic life. He needs to be encouraged. Why are you calling him a sinner? Besides, he can barely move. It's not like he goes out and parties. What does sin have to do with it? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because, really, our problems are multidimensional. And there's always collateral damage. Our physical difficulties can create psychological issues that also become spiritual problems. And most of our problems have some spiritual components. Now, psychiatrists and therapists, of course, our professionals can teach us how to cope, but what we need is a cure. Because whatever changes take place in our hearts or our minds or our medical conditions will not produce true healing until you deal with the soul. So Jesus began by addressing the patient's greatest need, forgiveness. The state of his body was only a symptom of the paralysis in his soul. His number one problem was sin. And Jesus had the cure. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Say what? The theologians in the crowd were absolutely shocked. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You're forgiving sins? Why, this is outrageous. Who do you think you are? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Forgiveness is a very personal transaction. If I do something wrong and it's my fault, then what I need to do is get on Facebook and list all the excuses that absolve me from any support me and encourage me. No, if I'm at fault, then I need to go to you and ask you for forgiveness. It's only between you and me and no one else. It's no one else's business. You know, I hear that Josh is a bit of a hot rodder. And uh, if after church he just accidentally would uh, hit Jason's car on the way out of the parking lot, Josh can't come to me and say, Zay, would you forgive me I hit Jason's car? That doesn't make any sense. It's, I have nothing to do with it. It's none of my business. That's between you and him. And no one else. 
In that case, I'm not part of the problem and I'm not part of the solution. Forgiveness is a transaction involving only those directly affected, the offender and the offended. So why would Jesus forgive this paralytic? Because they'd never seen each other before. He wasn't forgiving him because of the damaged roof. Obviously, this goes much deeper. Although this man did not have the mobility to indulge in the fatal attractions of life, there may have been something wrong in his heart. Maybe because of his situation, he was angry at God. And that had metastasized into bitterness. Jesus, of course, could understand and read what was going on in the hearts of people. And all sin, at its core, is really an act of defiance or disobedience or disappointment with God. It always involves God. So because of that, only a professional like a priest can forgive that. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been five minutes since my last confession. No way. Only God can ultimately forgive our sins. And the Pharisees understood that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So who do you think you are? They were beginning to realize that something was going on here. Something very, very controversial. This was outrageous. And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis again, when you study the claims that Jesus made, you realize there are only three possible conclusions. Either Jesus was deceiving people, which makes him a liar, or Jesus was deceiving himself, which makes him a lunatic, or Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, which makes him Lord. If he was deceiving people, then he was a liar, and that's what the religious leaders thought. The theologians were absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. So if Jesus was claiming the authority to do something only God can do, he was claiming to be God and nothing less. And that's precisely what makes Christianity not just a religion. It's Jesus. He is absolutely unique. You see, the cross of Christ does not provide yet another option for salvation. The cross is the only option for salvation. Jesus had a talk, the son had a talk with his father about that in Gethsemane when he asked, is there another way? And the father said, no. There is no other way. And that was God's final answer. If we say there are other ways of salvation than Jesus, then we are calling God a liar. Jesus is absolutely unique. No one comes to the Father except through him. 
We didn't make that up. That's what God revealed to us. So you could never say that Jesus was just a good man or just a great religious leader. He doesn't give us that option. If he wasn't God, then he was either a liar or a lunatic. And the whole thing is a farce. He is a fraud. But if he was who he claimed to be, then we are right on track by believing him and trusting him in all things. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Try to imagine the horror that they felt. I mean, their faith was all about rejecting idolatry, other gods. And now all of a sudden, someone stands in their midst who claims to have the power and authority of God. I believe this was the decisive moment when the religious leaders realized that Jesus of Nazareth had to be eliminated. He had gone too far by claiming to forgive this man. Jesus had committed the unpardonable sin and there could be no peaceful coexistence. This had now become a duel to the death. But then again, Jesus didn't just make a claim he couldn't substantiate. He also provided evidence. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say you're forgiven because you can't, can't verify that. But if you command him to walk, then we'll know if you're a fraud or not. But, verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen anything like this. You know, people want to see evidence. They want to see proof. Well, it's easy to say you're forgiven. Talk is cheap. And it's easy to say you're a follower of Christ. But where's the proof? Someone said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You see, there is compelling evidence for the existence of God, and that evidence is twofold. First of all, the evidence is his creation. The Bible says that God's greatness is clearly seen in the things he has made so that men are without excuse. The second evidence is the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Our lives are admissible evidence for those who want proof that God exists. 
That's what John talks about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, when he says, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. God's existence is made visible by how we treat one another, because God lives in us. And the unforgiven want to see evidence. Well, we are that evidence, and our love is exhibit A. And that is most clearly seen in the way we forgive. If the impact of God's forgiveness has changed our lives, then it will be obvious in the kind of love we display for others. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. Those who have been forgiven much will also love much. You can see it. You can see the evidence in their love. And those who have been forgiven much will also forgive others, especially when they don't deserve it. If you have truly been forgiven by God, the evidence will be in your ability to forgive others, especially when they don't deserve it. That's how you can tell the difference between the forgiven and the unforgiven. It should be obvious, so obvious that eyewitnesses will say, we have never seen anything like this. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. It's all because of the cross. And that's why we gather at this table. Father, we want to thank you for what happened at the cross that gave us the opportunity to have our sins forgiven. And it's not just about us. Because that spills over, it overflows as we forgive others. We do not hold grudges. We do not get bitter. We also forgive as you have forgiven us. And as we do that, we come to this table and proclaim the victory that your forgiveness has had in our lives and how it has continued to flow through our lives to all those who we deal with. Praise, honor, and glory to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.